Welcome to Peace Talks. Uh, my name's Steph Fenton. I'm part of the Peace Talks team. Uh, and we're doing things tonight without our wonderful coordinator, Brooke Prentice, who sends her apologies that she couldn't be here. Uh, she's attending an annual symposium for Nates, which is an Indigenous learning community. And she's presenting a paper there, which is exciting. So yeah, we also think of her tonight. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging country. Uh, so we take a moment now to acknowledge that this is Gadigal land and we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as we meet on Gadigal country tonight. And I want to pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present and future, and also to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are here tonight. Um, I also thought that it might be good to acknowledge uh, a significant date on the calendar that was on Monday, which was Mabo Day. Uh, so for people who may not know, Mabo Day celebrates that on the 3rd of June in 1982, Eddie Koiku Mabo, uh, from the Torres Strait won a case in the High Court um, that overturned the myth of Terra Nullius. So the myth that uh, this land it was nobody's land. Um, so yeah, we want to acknowledge and celebrate with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, brothers and sisters tonight. Um, and we also want to be reminded to speak up and to stand alongside uh, continuing injustices of land rights uh, as we acknowledge tonight as well. Um, if you're a first time for Peace Talks, uh, we're a monthly gathering here at Paddington Anglican Church. Welcome. Um, we like to talk about things, everything peace, which is political, ethical, artistic and cultural engagement. Um, there are little sign-up sheets if you would like to be reminded of when the next event is or if you have any feedback or suggestions of topics. Uh, there are a couple of pens at the end of the row, so uh, I think maybe just kind of share those around. I don't know if there's enough for everyone, uh, but please do that. And if actually you want to volunteer with the team, um, come up and speak to me if you'd like to do that. Uh, and we're very, very excited to have Erin Sessions here tonight. And she's going to be talking on the topic, Song of Songs and Australia's Problem with Intimate Partner Violence. Uh, so I'll welcome Erin up. She's an Old Testament lecturer at Alpha Crucius College. Uh, she's working towards her PhD on Song of Songs uh, through the Australian College of Theology. She's a member of Common Grace's domestic violence and family justice team with a focus on primary pre prevention. So when Erin is not working or studying or churching, which is at Thornley Community Baptist Church, or when she's chasing her two tiny humans around, uh, you can find her writing poetry or bending time and space to binge watch Netflix. So please welcome Erin to Peace Talks tonight. Thank you. Uh, so the first thing I want to do is also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, so the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, I also want to acknowledge the Darug people, which is where I live and work and where this talk was written. Um, so this talk comes with a strong trigger warning. Um, so we will be talking about domestic and family violence, intimate partner violence and gender-based violence. Um, so take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Um, if you need to step out, feel free. Uh, and so the other thing I want to do is acknowledge the survivors in the room. Um, there are quite a few of us here tonight, and that's too many. Um, so I also want to say this is the first time I'm speaking in an Anglican church, and it's really nice. 
I mean, so thank you, my strong Baptist contingent, for coming and being supportive. Um, but if we could have wine in our church and some candles, that'd be tops. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to jump right in. So I will be speaking about how the Song of Songs speaks to Australia's problem with intimate partner violence. So the Song of Songs is ripe with fruitful metaphors and lush imagery. It's both an exploration of love and of the bodies making it. The song is sublimely romantic and suggestively erotic poetry of the highest order. And it's difficult. There's the enigma of meaning, so there's a density of poetic devices, and they're really deftly deployed, and they require careful attention. There's also the complexity of how it makes us feel. So it's not a Christian Karma Sutra, but it simultaneously elicits avoidance and awkwardness and arouses our interest. So the Song of Songs is a sensuous celebration of intoxicating love. And there's much that Australians can learn from this. Australia has a problem with love and sex. Or more accurately, we have a problem with intimate partner violence. This is not sex as it was intended. This is not love as it was intended. The Song of Songs, the God-given example of good love, sex, and relationship, demonstrates how love can and should be. So tonight we're going to be exploring how Song of Songs models equality, consent, initiating and pursuing a respectful relationship, mutual desire, and love in community. And this is something that hopefully all of us, especially Australians, can emulate. So to quote former Australian of the Year, Rosie Batty, domestic violence in Australia is an epidemic and it is gendered. Since age 15, one in six Australian women, and some agencies report one in four, have experienced physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner. One in four have experienced emotional abuse from an intimate partner. Intimate partner violence is the greatest health risk factor for women aged 25 to 44. I am smack bang in the middle of that age range. One woman a week is killed by a result of violence from a current or former partner. So I am more likely to be impacted by intimate partner violence than I am to get cancer and we all know how prevalent breast cancer is, or I get taken out by a bus. And so this has been made no more, no more visceral to me than I wish I were joking. Tuesday night I was hit by a bus. <laughs> so that's how likely it is, how easy it is to be hit by a bus. I had a bus run up the back of me with my two small children in the back of the car while it was dark and raining, quite traumatic. I'm more likely to be impacted by intimate partner violence than what happened to me on Tuesday night. As I research this paragraph, I'm saying to you now, it was State of Origin Wednesday. That means a 40.7% increase in domestic violence for women and children. And to quote Annabelle Crabb, who I love and when I grow up I want to be her, a woman gets killed by her male partner every single week. And somehow that doesn't qualify as a tools-down national crisis 
even though if a man got killed by a shark every week, we'd probably arrange to have the oceans drained. It was October last year, as I finalised this article that this talk is based on, and 10 women had been murdered in the previous 22 days. So what can Australian society do? What can the church in Australia do? What can we in our communities do to address this seemingly insurmountable culture of violence against women? So, firstly, I probably need to be responsible and clarify that there are discrepancies in the research and the statistics on family, domestic, sexual, and intimate partner violence in Australia. So, reported rates vary from study to study, year to year, and that's due to a number of factors. So there's no common or consistent set of definitions. There's no consistent identification method. So even as simple as taking someone's full name, depending on what community you're in and what background you are from, we might not even be able to capture your full name. There's limited data about specific at-risk groups, such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, people with disability, the LGBTQIA plus community. Finally, there's no national oversight. So the data are fragmented due to different organisations and different sectors being involved. So these data gaps, along with, of course, the trauma and stigma of reporting, of speaking up, means that it's highly likely that domestic and family violence is underreported. We're already at epidemic rates. So, it would also be wise for me to provide some definitions. So, this is the kind of the less interesting, punny song of songs part. So, family violence refers to violence between family members, typically where the perpetrator exercises power and control over another person. The most common and pervasive instances occur in intimate, that's current and former, partner relationships, and that's usually referred to as domestic violence. Sexual violence refers to behaviours of a sexual nature carried out against a person's will. It can be perpetrated by a current or former partner, other people known to the victim, or a stranger. So here we'll be focusing on intimate partner sexual violence, but necessarily that encompasses talking about other kinds of violence. So an integral part of understanding any complex social problem like intimate partner violence and how we might go about preventing it is working to understand what causes it. So previously, much of the research had focused on a variety of single causes. So we looked at things like evolution, and then we looked at physiology, and then we looked at psychopathology and personality traits. But more recent research recognises that causation is complex. It analyzes the historical, socio-cultural and social factors which contribute to the occurrence of intimate partner violence. Research into intimate partner violence explore, explores prevention strategies, deterrence such as law reform, as well as responses like community services. So tonight we'll be looking at social research concerned with primary prevention strategies. So research into intimate partner violence uh, explores prevention, uh, no, sorry. So this research shows that key predictors of violence against women relate to how individuals, 
community and society as a whole view the roles of men and women. So some of the strongest predictors for, vi for holding violent supportive attitudes at an individual level are low levels of support for gender equality and following traditional gender stereotypes. The government's national plan focuses on preventing violence by raising awareness, so doing things like giving this talk, and building respectful relationships. And that's with an aim to foster attitudinal and behavioural change at the cultural, institutional, and individual levels. So this is where I think Song of Songs comes to the fore, as God's given example, celebration even, of love, sex, sexuality, and relationship can help men and women understand love and sexuality as they were intended. So we'll explore how the lover and the beloved, that's the woman and the man, exemplify primary prevention strategies. So that is, and I'll go through it again, how they model equality, consent, initiating and pursuing a respectful relationship, mutual desire, and love in community. And since we know primary prevention strategies have successfully reduced other complex social or health problems like drink driving and smoking, we know that prevention is better than cure. So I'll be demonstrating this from an examination of Song of Songs 1, 1 to 6. Um, so if you want, feel free to get your Bible out or your devices out and follow along. Um, the translation kind of jumps around the place because it's my own translation, but you'll be able to pick it up in most translations. Um, and so Song of Songs 1, 1 to 6 encourages each of us, especially majority of us being church-going Australians, to follow the example of the lover and the beloved, and hopefully this will aid in the prevention of intimate partner violence. And so as much as this discussion of intimate partner violence is located within social research, which outlines primary prevention strategies, the exploration of the first six verses of Song of Songs is located within a tradition which asserts that in Song of Songs, there is no male dominance, no female subordination, and no stereotyping of either sex. So hence this talk is less a survey of statistics on intimate partner violence or feminist thinking on the song, and more an exegetical study of the linguistic and literary devices and how they show equality, attitudes towards sexuality and mutuality, and how we might be able to apply this in our Australian context. So surely the starting point for Song of Songs must be to recognise that what lies before us on the page is love poetry, and it's love poetry of the highest art. And while the song bears all the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry, so it's terse, it's evocative, it's plentiful in its parallelism, the nature and force of the metaphors, the imagery, the really complex figurative language will not always be clear or agreed upon. So an important overarching point to consider as we examine the lover and the beloved's encounter is that there are no real women in this text. So that means there are no real men in this text either. We must remember that this God-given example of love and relationship is a poetic creation. But that doesn't mean that their humanity and their equality are not to be emulated. The level of equality across our society, 
as well as within individual relationships, can have a significant impact on reducing violence against women. The unequal distribution of power and the adherence to rigid or hierarchical gender roles reflects gendered patterns in the prevalence and perpetration of violence. But what's extraordinary about Song of Songs is precisely the absence of structural and systemic hierarchy. Sovereignty, authority, control, superiority, and submission in relation to the lovers. In the song, we have a female protagonist who is assertive and determined in love poetry which waxes rhapsodic about the good gift of human sexuality. So though the song opens in medias res, so that literally means in the middle of the action, pun intended, it does begin with what should be the starting place of any sexual encounter, consent. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So what I mean by consent is to agree to do or allow something to happen, to give permission for something to happen or be done. So make no mistake, for a woman to give consent was a revolutionary concept in its ancient Near Eastern context. And while it shouldn't be, the concept is still radical for Australians today. Earlier last year, the New South Wales Attorney General called for a review of sexual consent laws following the overturning of a rape conviction on the basis that it could be proved that the woman did not consent. It could not be proved that the man had understood that she had not consented. So let me say that again. It could be proved that the woman did not consent, but we couldn't prove that the man understood that. Those are our laws. The New South Wales Minister for the Prevention of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault stated, if it's not an enthusiastic yes, then it's a no. Ancient laws, including the family laws in Deuteronomy, seem to indicate that a woman's sexuality was not her own. It was first her father's, sometimes her brother's, and then her husband's. So it would appear that consent was not hers to give. And yet here in the song, we have an example of a woman who has her own agency, she's in control of her own sexuality in a subversion of patriarchal cultural norms. Recent Australian social research shows that Australian parents don't know how to talk to their kids about consent. A primary prevention strategy for intimate partner violence, including sexual coercion, harassment, abuse, and rape, is to talk to our kids. Talk to them about clear and enthusiastic consent. It's imperative that we are talking about consent in our churches. And we have a biblical example from which to teach. The opening verse of Song of Songs, in fact, the very first word the lover speaks, gives consent. So it's a verb phrase translated as, let him kiss me. It's in the jussive mood. I'm sorry this is getting a bit technical. Go with me. I promise I break it up with puns. <laughs> so it's in the jussive mood, which is used to express wish, desire, and permission. So Longman states that this is an invitation for intimacy expressed in the form of a wish. I'd go a step further and say that this is permission for intimacy 
intentionally and enthusiastically expressed in the very verb form that is supposed to do that. So the lover is both consenting and inviting her lover to consent. The implicit eroticism is clear. It's even confronting. But if you can't find a way to make consent sexy, then you are literally doing it wrong. So the next thing to note is the female lover both initiates this encounter and she continues to pursue the relationship. So we've already seen that she's the first to speak. Let him kiss me. But she also has the last word. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of spice. And in the eight chapters in between, her voice is clear, strong, passionate, enthusiastic, and intimate. So there might be plenty of walls and plenty of flowers in Song of Songs, but she's no wallflower. She knows what she wants, she's not afraid to say it. So in this ancient Near Eastern context, a woman taking the initiative is subversive and is perhaps unfortunately, not all too surprisingly, still countercultural to Christian contexts where women are expected to keep their proper place in life and in the relationship. Australian women, especially Christians, have long been instructed to leave men to the initiating and pursuing of relationships. Yet, in Song of Songs, we have a woman whose assertiveness undermines our stereotypes of ancient gender roles, and it instructs those today who look to the Bible for guidance in matters of relationships. The research into intimate partner violence is clear. Expecting men and women to conform to a narrow gender stereotype or rigid hierarchical gender norms, such as men should do the wooing and pursuing, is a contributing factor to the incidence of domestic violence. In order to aid the prevention of intimate partner violence, churches can demonstrate that women are active, not passive. We are subjects, not objects. We have our own agency, and we can make our own decisions about how, when, and with whom we initiate and pursue a relationship. In the song, we have an example of a woman who enthusiastically and respectfully initiates a relationship. She then continues to pursue the relationship. Draw me after you, let us make haste. And in turn, her beloved pursues her. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. The language of the lover in this opening verse and throughout the song merits some special attention. She shifts back and forth between addressing her beloved in the second and third person. So here she's making use of a literary device common to Hebrew poetry, the so-called PNG shift, so person, number, gender. Switching between grammatical persons occurs in other ancient Near Eastern poetry and of course in poetry more generally. So immediately after let him kiss me, she exclaims in the same verse, for your love is more delightful than wine. So what's really important for us to understand here is that addressing her beloved in the third person imports a respectful tone. Through its indirectness, the use of the third person conveys the awe and respect with which the lovers interact. And as much as their pursuance is mutual, so is their respect. For the beloved states, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. 
the lovers are at once respectful and intimate. In this song, we have an expression of female desire with joy and in mutual respect, which leads to two very pertinent factors in preventing intimate partner violence. So firstly, respect for women. Secondly, an understanding of female sexual desire. So to begin to prevent violence, we need to understand the cycle of violence. Not all disrespect towards women results in violence, but all violence against women starts with disrespectful behaviour. Developing respectful relationships will have long-term impacts on the level of violence against women. If the church is to help stop intimate partner violence at the start, then we must model respectful relationships. So understanding how the song models respect is one of the ways we can do this. So the song couples enelage with figuration and metaphor to emphasize respect and desire. The lover figuratively calls the beloved the king in verse four, and in verse seven, likens him to a shepherd, thus endowing, pun intended, him with metaphorical roles that express her respect and her desire for him. And in turn, the beloved frequently refers to his lover in the third person, as we know that is a respectful way to refer to someone, with his favourite epithet for her, my love. So this very cleverly evokes multiple meanings in Hebrew, expressing his respect and his desire for her. The song shows us that passionate desire and considerate respect go hand in hand in the bedroom. So, in the double entendre of the late, great Aretha Franklin, respect. Give it to me when you get home. <laughs> so this brings us to the next factor in preventing intimate partner violence, an informed and healthy understanding of female sexual desire. So in Song of Songs, without any introduction of characters or context, we glimpse a bold declaration of sexual want as the book's opening. And yet discussions in the Australian church and Australian society more generally around female desire and sexuality have been paltry. Australia has a problem with the false dichotomies of prudes and sluts and Madonnas and whores. We misunderstand female sexuality and then we impugn women who don't conform to our narrow conceptions of how a woman should behave. Within the church, women are expected to switch off their desire before marriage, often with the onus of purity placed squarely on the woman, with little to no discussion of the experience of desire. And then we're expected to turn it on like a tap after marriage, whenever the husband wants sex, with little to no discussion of what happens when the wife does or doesn't want sex. So this kind of thinking was exemplified in a recent Australian article which argues, from 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible is clear. Frequent sex is a duty for both husband and wife. Biblical, the biblical rule is this. Sexlessness in marriage is sinfulness. So let's not get started on people who are asexual or people with disability. Research into the prevalence of domestic violence within our churches shows that this kind of thinking is dangerous for women. Sex is not a duty. It's not an obligation. Women do not owe men sex. 
that's not what Song of Songs exemplifies. From the very first line, the song holds up as an example, a woman who insists on her right to initiate love, to feel, to enjoy and to explore the power of her sexuality. Educating women and men about sexuality, opening the bedroom door to understanding female anatomy, arousal and desire, it's actually gonna be key in the prevention of intimate partner violence. So let us turn more explicitly, again, pun intended, to an exploration of female desire in the song. Because a culture which seeks to understand female desire is one that can promote healthy, passionate, and respectful intimate relationships. So firstly, the phrase, your love, actually connotes the act of physical lovemaking rather than the squishy, mushy feeling of love. The lover plunges headlong into expressing her deep desire for her beloved, and it cannot wait. The exuberance, enthusiasm, and urgency of let us make haste, let us run, attests to this. She wants him, and she wants him now. Her use of synesthesia shows that she is unashamedly sensual. So that's both in terms of her erotic longing, but also in her somatic engagement of all five senses. So the five senses all contribute to sexual arousal and the sexual response cycle. Through her evoking of the taste and headiness of wine, again, let's have wine in Baptist churches, the fragrance of oils, the feel of embraces, she conveys her passionate delight in bodily sensations, in vivid language and imagery with absolutely no trace of prudery. Her desire for her beloved is palpable and likewise his desire for her. Perhaps if female desire, including God's given example in Song of Songs, weren't taboo, and we discussed mutually desirous relationships in our churches, we might begin to see a reduction in the rates of intimate partner violence. Now, I don't know if you're following along with Song of Songs, but you might note that there's a shift in tone and mood from verse four to verses five and six. So communal exaltation gives way to the woman's experience of being gazed at because she has dark skin. As a Semitic woman, she would have had relatively dark skin and it would have been made darker due to working in the sun. It's likely here that the daughters of Jerusalem are classist rather than racist, but the issue of being judged on one's skin color still remains. Yet again, Song of Songs is subversive. In a patriarchal culture where women, women could be forced to labor in a vineyard, and in a culture that would have prized fair skin, she stands up for herself. And she says, I am black, but I am beautiful. She does not mean beautiful in appearance only. Her inner loveliness, those qualities that make her a beautiful human, the way she cares deeply for her beloved, and the way she asserts herself, they also make her beautiful. And so as the song gives voice to the lover's degrading experiences, being forced to toil outside and being judged on the color of her skin, here's where feminism must become intersectional. So in an Australia where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are twice as likely to be killed by a current or former partner than non-Indigenous women, 
we need to listen to the voices of women of colour, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And we must understand that violence against women does not occur in isolation from other issues faced by individuals and communities. So we see that the song exhibits an attitude which pervades Australian society. Sections of the community looking down on people, particularly women, because of the colour of their skin. But we can learn from the lover herself and from women of colour who faithfully exegete her words. And here I quote female African-American scholar Loris Wilkins Lawrence, who states, the message of Song 1-5 is transformed into good news for black women. I am black, but, contrary to the so-called beauty myth and centuries-old racist ideologies of colonialism, slavery, black is beautiful. Furthermore, given the fact that unshaded work deepens the shade of a woman's skin, work that is required of those lower in the social and economic hierarchy in a culture such as Israel's, the song here also raises matters of social disadvantage. When we turn to an Australian context, it's clear that family violence within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities needs to be understood as both a cause and effect of social disadvantage and intergenerational trauma. So as a primary prevention strategy for domestic violence, we can listen to the voices of women and elders in our Indigenous communities and partner with them to develop innovative approaches, approaches community-led initiatives that heal trauma, change attitudes, and improve the coordination of services. I also, as an aside, look forward to the day when I can read a commentary on Song of Songs by an Aboriginal woman. So, in verses five to six, not only do we see the lover speak up for herself, but we also learn about whom and to whom she speaks. The lover and the beloved aren't isolated. Their love exists in community. So once again, it should be stated that the community, her mother, brothers, the daughters of Jerusalem, the beloved's companions, are less actual people and more literary figures. However, this does not mean that they don't provide an example to be followed or warnings that illustrate community failings. So her mother's sons, which is either a way to describe full brothers or a distancing term, or it might even be a matrilineal nod, a subtle nod in a patriarchal society. Whatever the meaning is, it is clear that they were angry with her. The inference is that they are angry over a perceived stepping out of line. So remember that in this society, her brothers are supposed to be in control of her sexuality. So it's probably a sexual stepping out of line given the context, but we can't know. It may also have been an economic stepping out of line. Perhaps her relationship means that her brothers perceive her as shirking her agricultural duties in the vineyard. What we do know is that the way they treat her scarcely befits brotherly love. Their anger is boiling. The verb here literally means to boil. They exert control over her and they compel her to toil until she's sunburnt. In today's terms, we describe that as family violence. Cultural and social norms, attitudes and beliefs contribute to all forms of violence against women, 
whether it's emotional, psychological, economic, physical or sexual violence. These beliefs can result in violence being justified, excused or hidden. The lover relays her experience of violence to the daughters of Jerusalem. And though they seem to judge her on her appearance, compounding the ill treatment she's already received from her brothers, they actually remain her associates throughout the rest of Song of Songs, perhaps even her friends. They function as her sounding board throughout Song of Songs. So, for better or worse, this is her community. And I know that for a lot of us, that can reflect our own church communities. Sometimes they've got our back, sometimes they're part of the problem. So the broader picture here is a young woman looking to her community and imploring them to listen to what she has to say. She wants them to take her advice seriously. So the lovers model for us love in community, both the good examples and the bad. Imperative in preventing intimate partner violence is listening to women. I cannot stress that enough. Listen to women. Believe women. Churches must listen to the all too often silenced voices of women. Violence against women is a community problem and it requires a community solution. The national plan encourages strong and committed local and organizational leadership for primary prevention strategies to be successful. So we have both the government's national plan to reduce violence against women and their children and the Song of Songs prompting churches to take responsibility as community members and leaders in preventing violence against women. I think that's a challenge for all of our churches. So, in conclusion, since we know that there are no real women in Song of Songs, the lover is not a particular woman, but she stands for all of us, for all women. The very first words she speaks model enthusiastic consent. She is both consenting and invites consent. She initiates and pursues a passionate relationship. She is assertive, she is exuberant, and her beloved also pursues her. Their relationship is respectful. She calls him a king and a shepherd, and he calls her love. She is at once respectful and sensual. There's no false dichotomy there. She is filled with an unabashed longing and an arousing intermingling of the senses. She speaks up for herself, even though her brothers have failed in their responsibility to care for her and her contemporaries, the daughters of Jerusalem, turn their gaze upon her because of her dark complexion. So even though her position in the community is uncertain, she implores her community to listen to her and to heed her advice. The social research behind Australia's national plan to reduce violence against women and their children highlights equality, consent, respect, that violence is not unrelated to attitudes about female desire and sexuality, a community responsibility as strategies for the prevention of domestic violence. So as much as the Psalms encourage us to imagine ourselves in the place of the Psalmist, 
The song invites us to step into the delight of the lover and the beloved, to celebrate rather than distort God's good gift of sex.